So, a bartender, an author, and a pie maker walk into a tent. That's not the start of, the, of a joke. That's the start of tonight. Welcome, everyone, to Lighthouse and to tonight's special food theme, Making the Mountain. I'm Rebecca Arenauer, your host. I'm not much of a cook myself, but I do have to eat every day. Sometimes that can lead to sad dining experiences. For instance, yesterday I made spaghetti, um, and I'm such a lazy and impatient cook that the pasta wasn't even al dente, it was hard. <laughs> I topped the spaghetti with some shredded cheddar cheese that tasted like my refrigerator. Um, but we all need to eat to survive. It's right up there with clothing and shelter. And we can, and I have, survived on sad spaghetti. But there's so much more that's possible. And I've experienced it. I've had meals with my family at home where we idle over coffee and dessert and joke about the meaning of life and dinners at restaurants where I experience flavor combinations I couldn't have imagined. And if you define art as anything that's beyond what's necessary, then we can all agree great food is art. And it's our most primary art. As much as I love Lighthouse, our hosts, give it up to Lighthouse. Um, and a good short story, I know that I don't need great writing to stay alive. But because food is the art we experience most often, and occasionally alone while watching movie trailers on our computers, it's easy to take it for granted. So I thought it was appropriate to have a Making the Mountain devoted to food and spirits. If anything, it would save me one night of the sad spaghetti special. I'm sure tonight's speakers, Rob Corberry, the beverage director of Bar Fausto, Adrian Miller, the author of Soul Food, the surprising story of American cuisine, one plate at a time, and Sean Lot, the owner of the Long Eye Pie Shop, all have their versions of sad spaghetti. But fundamentally, they're more interested in exploring what's possible with food and drink than just surviving. Our speakers have other things in common. They all got into food after doing things to help their communities, whether through paramedics, politics, or social work. And they're all fighting misconceptions, like that the service industry can't be a profession, that soul food isn't worthy of celebration, that pies can't be innovative. The biggest misconception they fight is that what they love isn't important. And maybe because we've all had so many sad spaghettis, or lesser forms of what these people are interested in, supermarket fried chicken, grocery store apple pie, drive through strawberry margaritas, we forget the artistry and care that goes into what they're making. So let's be reminded, let's bring up Rob. So I'm not a great writer, I'm not a great speaker, so you guys can bear with me tonight. Get my notes out. Yeah, <laughs> start with a good drink, so I'm already, we're ahead, we're ahead there. So, yeah, guys got you all loose. So I had this pineapple up here on the table tonight, <clears throat> and maybe some of you guys know, but a lot of people don't, that for over, I, mean, I want to say over 250 years, if this piece of fruit symbolized, and if it was displayed at any party as the whole pineapple, there was no expense spared in guaranteeing every guest's whim, need, want, or enjoyment. That's what we do every day at the populace. That's why every day we strive to do that at uh, Bar Fausto. And that's what a lot of people in my field um, feel like when you guys grace our presence every single night, whether for food or drink. 
Um, a little obscure thing, but if you're out there someday, like especially here in town, I do see a lot of just little pineapple pins on bartenders. So if you see that, now you know. Be like, <laughs> if there's lackluster service, you'd be like, I know what that pineapple means. <laughs> and they're like, oh, shit. Okay. But... As Rebecca kind of introduced me, my name is Rob Corbari. I'm the uh, Populous Beverage Director, Fausto Beverage Director, Bar Manager. And I kind of do a lot of different things, jack of all trades at the restaurant. Um, when you walk into the Populous and the Bar Fausto, uh, there are my second homes. Um, when you get to experience all that love and detail and painstaking hard work that I put in, my owners put in, my chefs put in, our employees put in, our dishwasher puts in, our delivery guys put in, I just, it should be overwhelming. You should feel it when you walk in that door. And I, I like to think that sometimes, you know, a large majority of our guests do, and that makes me great. Um, as Rebecca kind of hit on, my background, um, let's see, human physiology major. I was going to be a doctor. Uh, actually went into firefighting, and I was a paramedic for a number of years. Um, I love that. Um, but after a number of years, the excitement kind of wore off. That side of humanity kind of wore off a little bit, because at that moment, um, when somebody calls 911, it's the worst moment in their life. And that's hard. And uh, I didn't want to become kind of guarded and jaded with that. Um, but getting into the hospitality industry um, or the restaurant industry in general, there's something I learned very important from that, is that when I walked into a building or you walk into my bar, I have to gain your trust very quickly. So you come in, you ask me, you vet me, can you make this? How does this taste? And hopefully within that first few minutes, I've now garnered your trust that instead of just a drink and a bite to eat, it turns into an experience. Because even if you forget the food or you forget what's in the cocktail, you're going to remember who served it to you. You're going to remember the people that you were with. And that's the most important part to me, and I hope it's the most important part to you guys. Um, like I said, I'm pretty new at this public speaking thing, so I'm a little nervous. Um, <laughs> even though I did sneak a few of my own cocktails. <laughs> um, but... As Rebecca said, uh, it's always good to start with a joke. And instead of just a lame bartender joke, I'll tell you one of my more memorable experiences and kind of segue into this hospitality talk is uh, I'm working in a wine bar downtown Denver, Colorado a number of years ago, and it was right by the convention center. And it was late, and it was just me. I had kind of cut the rest of my staff and, like, a couple of chefs in the kitchen, one server, and we're all hanging out. And I see two uh, cowboys walk in. And they are cowboy hats, sweat stains, shit on their boots – tired, sunburnt, and then think in my head, okay, here we go. Two Coors Lights, two shots of whiskey. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm ready. I'm like, I'm like, have the beers ready to crack in my hand. And they sit down. And I was like, hey, guys, welcome. And they're like, you know, good to be here. Thank you. It's good to be in Denver. Guys, what can I get for you? And the first cowboy goes, Cosmopolitan. <laughs> Extra pink. <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely. And the guy goes, something tiki. Do not hold back on the pineapple juice. <laughs> And if you have a little umbrella, put that in there, too. <laughs> and I smiled ear to ear. It was amazing. And that's, like, something that I get to do every day is that my conceptions or whatever as we do as people every day and in this business gets wiped away with every guest interaction. Um, every experience develops just what this job is, how unique the people are, uh, shattering stereotypes, lowering our inhibitions and having fun. And then uh, storytelling. And I got to talk to those guys a little bit and like, they never get those drinks. They live in the middle of nowhere. They don't have, nobody knows how to make a cosmopolitan. So in town, that's what they enjoyed. So I was happy to do that. Um, I've been in this career for almost 10 years and I haven't regretted a moment. Um, yes, it's been hard. 
Uh, it has pushed me. It's uh, strained my relationships. Um, my beautiful pregnant wife, Dory, is here tonight, too. <laughs> so... We have a little, sorry, a little emotional. We have a little baby girl coming in August, um, which is exciting. But uh, you know, there are a lot of sacrifices, a lot of promises, um, because what I do is I serve, um, and it's been hard on us. But we've made it through, and I wouldn't take any of it back. Um, you know, if I could relate to anybody that's done something they're incredibly proud of, that they've took chances, they've worked their butt off to achieve a goal. Um, We've all been there, and it involves all those things. And every day I'm lucky enough to experience that, and it challenges me, and I grow, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and so hopefully with all that said and teary-eyed and all that stuff, you can tell that I love what I do. Um, and sometimes what Rebecca was talking about, there are challenges. And, you know, we always joke in the service industry is that, you know, everybody in the world should work at a restaurant. I don't care if you're a lawyer, an astronaut, the president. Everyone should have a restaurant job just so you can get it because um, it's hard. And so, but there are stigmas because obviously no one's, not everybody in the world can work at a restaurant. Um, and some people have heard about bartending that there are some horror stories, you know. There are um, some terrible stuff out there, you know. Uh, but to let you guys know in 2016 and I've traveled the country and met some of the top people and drank at the diviest of places and the most celebrated of places that 99% of those establishments aren't stealing from you. Um, they're not pouring inferior spirits into an expensive package. Um, you know, they're, they're not looking to get one over. They're looking to make a connection with you. They're looking to love or have you appreciate like what they're pouring themselves into. And, um, more and more in this world, uh, they're not just trying to pay the bills. They're trying to be inspired every day to create with hard work. Um, and uh, with your hard-earned money, they're just trying to create an experience that you guys, like I said earlier before, can go home and talk about. And it's not about the steak they chate or the drink that you had, but it's an experience that you want to bring your friends back. Um, every day, I try to kind of honor the literal meaning of bartender, which is um, protecting goods and products and to dispense them responsibly. With that literal statement said, I try to add a little bit more to that with the term keeper. To me, it's a position of trust. I try to keep my guests happy, engaged. I try to keep secrets. I try to keep my stories out to par. I try to keep the peace. I try to keep the jokes. I try to keep over 200 classic cocktails or whatever's new and contemporary in my head any given night that somebody walks in and says, do you know how to make that? And I says, yes. Or I say, I don't, but Google exists. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, and actually that, that leads me to uh, another funny story. I was working at another restaurant here in Denver a number of years ago. And down the street was the Hells Angels Clubhouse. <laughs> and every Thursday night they had what they called church. And uh, so they talk and all the bikes are out there and they got the prospects guard and everything. And, and then about 9 o'clock, three or four of them would always show up to my fancy cocktail bar. And like full patches and prospects standing outside protecting the bikes and you know, looking super tough. And at the time, we had a drink called the Paracuda. <laughs> and it was it's not like pear, vodka, and cilantro, and all these like fun things. And this big, manly biker would come in and be like, Rob, I'm like, what's up, Pete? I get that Paracuda. <laughs> After like months of this, like through the summer, I remember one day, uh, which kind of ties in like keeping the secret, is that like, what do you do when you're on the road? What do you do when you go to Sturgis? What do you do when you're, you know, in Vegas? Do you get, like, pina coladas? And he's like, shut up. You know, like, I don't do that. 
but I'd like to like you know I'd like to introduce my friend Phil, and he's a nomad, and he travels the country, and he has no home and no life and wife. It's just the bike and the road. And this guy, he looks like a catcher's mitt with like the permanent like cigarette cigar thing in his mouth. And he's like, "What's up, Rob?" And uh, I was like, "Phil, what do you know? What do you want to drink?" And uh, I was like, "Whatever you're drinking." And I'm like, okay, well, we drink a uh, 500-year-old uh, Chartreusean French monk liqueur. <laughs> he's like, I don't know what the fuck that is. I'm like, it's pretty boozy. And he's like, come on, man, look at me. I can handle anything. I'm like, okay, cool. Okay, so two shots, green chartreuse. Here we do. And like I said, it's 500 years old. Uh, Chartreusean Catholic monks took 120 different herbal and elements from their own backyard with a medicinal purpose. They thought if they put it all together that they would cure all disease. Didn't quite work out that way, but they've been pretty happy for 500 years. Um, so shots are on the table, kind of the end of the night, and uh, we take the shot, and Phil just goes white. I mean, all the rotans gone. Skin's tight. What was in there? And I'm like, I told you, it's like a bunch of, you know, cool French stuff. And... Uh, we had the garage doors open behind the bar and he gets up really quick and I watch him go out the back door and I see him behind me and all I hear is just like (laughs) (laughs) comes back in like five minutes later he's wiping his mouth and he's like you don't ever tell anyone that I ever threw up (laughs) and I was looking straight in the eye and I was like duh of course not (laughs) and that's just kind of like everyday interactions like this this man pushed me to my limits I pushed him to his limits and at the end of the day, I, this hardened man, ready to hop on his bike and go to his next like, nomad adventure, gave me a huge hug. And he's like, and it was a good thing. And so keeping that trust and, like I said, you know, having that hug ready or those comforting words for anybody in need is what I do. And I make it my job every day when I get up at the crack of dawn. And the first thing I do after my wife heads to work um, is I get on my phone and or before any you know, bartenders before me got a newspaper out. And they learned what was happening in their neighborhood and their city in their country, and in the world. And every day I'm armed when you guys grace my pre- with me with your presence. Um, I'm ready to talk about anything. You know, you want to talk about quantum physics? Do it. Let's do it. You want to talk about Trump? Okay. You know, um, <coughs> anything. Weather, great. You know, but I'm always there. I'm ready. And it's a unique thing that I get all walks of life that come in and are able to you know, chew the fat with me and I'm ready for it. And then, you know, I've had guys, we've had great conversations and a year goes by and I'm like, and I think to myself, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that lady. She came in and a year later she walks in my door. She's like, I've been in Thailand for a year, but I only wanted to do is get back to Denver and talk with you and have you make me a drink, which is pretty cool. Um, so kind of moving on here. Um, kind of wrap it up just a little bit i have some other stuff i want to talk about but kind of in the sappy stuff is so next time you know you sit at a bar you're at a restaurant and your drinks taking a little bit too long or people are frantic or something like that take a deep breath and enjoy that when it's done right that you're getting to rejoice and experience something of somebody who which i call you know restaurant ninjas because the stuff that they're doing is phenomenal. Some people ask me, even my, you know, my best employees ask me, Rob, what do you need? And I see seven more arms. <laughs> um, and kind of going in with that. So when you see that person, 
and they're running their tail off and your water's not quite full. And I'll just kind of give you a synopsis of my day. So when I get up and I we talked about, you know, absorbing information, uh, usually I walk in the door, you know, around like 12 o'clock. Um, I don't usually leave until 1.30 that night. But my day starts with talking with my liquor reps, my wine reps, uh, quality control. Um, I talk to catch up with my owners, my partners, my produce vendors, my glassware guys, um, <laughs> uh, equipment um, providers. If something's broken, I check my ice machine to make sure things are freezing correctly. I taste every piece of fruit. I make sure that every fork and every knife is polished and clean. I make sure that every candle has a full candle in it. Um, I smell, taste, absorb everything. And that's kind of how my day goes. And that's cleanliness. I just making sure the music is there. And then I usually get to find out what employee got too drunk after the restaurant closed and have to talk to them for five minutes. Um, but that's what it takes just to get the door open. And then the next phase is when you guys get to come in and hang out with me. And so just a little bit of perspective kind of going in with that misconception that, well, you know, it's just, it's just booze in a glass. So I'm just going like, to not sound too preachy, but just kind of give you guys that perspective on what it takes for all of that to happen. Uh, so we talked a little bit about hospitality, and I brought that pineapple as an example, is that we truly feel at any restaurant that you walk in, you have a good experience, that that symbol means that we'll do anything you want, you know, if you ask correctly and politely. And even if, you know, you are aggressive and upset, well, you know, we'll make sure that you leave happy because that's what we do. And some people would call that incredibly uh, masochistic. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it has some truth to it. Um, we can handle we can handle a lot. Um, but when you're at a restaurant, the big thing, especially in 2016, when we're so plugged in all the time, um, as a guest, I kind of want you guys to look around and enjoy humanity as we're all having a glass of wine or enjoying the best chicken we've ever had um, or anything like that, and kind of look at each other and absorb how interesting we all are. Um, a lot of people forget how special they are. And I think in a restaurant environment with a couple drinks or some really good food, you also get to reminded by engaging in a complete stranger, you get rewarded to find out how special you guys are too. And that's a really nice thing. And I get to see that every day too. And so that's a big motivating factor for me that I love what I do. And um, I'm incredibly proud of it because I get to see people, that light bulb go off and like, oh yeah, like... People aren't terrible, even though I got cut off 15 times a day on I-25 or anything like that. Um, and what's kind of fun about going into that is that I always tell my guests that, you know, the bar, the restaurant, especially the bar, um, was kind of like our first uh, what we call modern reality TV. Like we could sit there and see all facets of life. And there's always a couple of people that are being like really crazy or stupid, giving us stories and examples and being that cautionary tale that we get to tell everybody else the next day at work. Be like, I saw this guy. He did this thing. Um, and some of our most celebrated uh, Americans or international celebrities going back as far as we can think of, usually we're drunkards. <laughs> usually imbibed a little bit too much. Um, and uh, we still celebrate them for their ingenuity, their perspective to see all humanity and live in it. And uh, that's another big factor of why I love what I do. And uh, so next time you sit down again and you want to check your phone right away, maybe unplug. Maybe put your phone back in your pocket and look to the ladder, right or the left of you and see what that person's all about and ask them a question or, you know, they're like, and if they give you a really kind of shitty look, it's like, Hey man, I'm on my phone. I'm playing angry birds. I'm like, I just talked to this guy, this bartender. He told me to do it. So blame him. He's at the populace. 
Um, but yeah, kind of what I was talking about, historical figures. Um, one of my favorites, Mark Twain, um, as a famous drunkard. And uh, everybody knows Mark Twain. we got a bunch of writers in here. Um, but some of my favorite things is uh, when ice, he was kind of in the era in America where we actually put ice in cocktails. And I think it every day where one of his quotes was, ice in a cocktail are like diamonds on the most beautiful woman's neck. So it's pretty cool. Don't take that for granted. And another thing, too, is uh, which I really like that kind of talks or ties into uh, this hospitality stuff is that he said, never refuse to do kindness unless the act would injure you. Never refuse to take a drink under any circumstance. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of in conclusion, um, everything that I work for, everything that I'm trying to do um, with my kids um, that work for me, um, they call me Bar Dad, and, like, and I was like, only because you guys make me a little bit more gray every like three months. But um, I'm trying to build an alumni. I'm trying to uh, put people that have that passion out into the world, that so they can go and cultivate and love, and innovate and care and take on the world from uh, their perspective, and that the, they can go on and do great things and take care of you guys and create experiences as well. And my travels to a lot of breweries and a lot of distilleries. Um, across America. I was just in Kentucky uh, for the last two days. I just got back uh, yesterday. Um, Let's see, I went to Maker's Mark, and I went to Jim Beam, and I bought an amazing 12-year-old bourbon barrel for the populace in Faustos. You guys, 90 days want to come try that (laughs) on me. But um, it's amazing to see even at that level, so the restaurant experience is somebody making a drink from a bottle, but to take it back and see, like to say Maker's Mark, for example, now I get to see, and I get to be lucky enough to tell you guys, that there are over 120 people working 24-7 in shifts to make sure that that product, that label, is beautiful, it tastes the same, it's consistent. And it's just like that storytelling and that history and like Americana that goes back into that entire process. So it's not just glass or food. You have to think about all those other people that work endlessly for this experience. And... Um, it's kind of it's incredibly kind of overwhelming thing um, when you think the sum total can be in a three ounce glass, but it takes countless hours, time, pressure, decades, millennia to figure a lot of that out. Um, and so, as we grow in this industry, I like to see that more bartenders, more restaurants are increasing their knowledge. They're traveling. Um, they're seeing what everybody else is doing. And that we're lucky enough to have people like Rebecca and people that are at Lighthouse that are engaging us and like opening up the dialogue a little bit more. So we get to talk to you about our perspective as well. Um, and then kind of just why I love it is every day to kind of sum all this fun stuff up is an experience to learn about new people, new passions, new fears, new triumphs. Um, And my favorite thing right now is that I get to look out over this 80-plus group of people, all of you guys, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I think I started with a good drink, that I have 80 new friends. And that's that's the name of this business. So, guys, thank you very much. I'll see you guys. Appreciate you. Thanks so much, Rob. That was great. We are going to pass out some food for Adrian Miller. So that should be coming out right now, and then Adrian will speak. All right, good evening, everyone. I'm Adrian Miller. So what you're getting is a sample of vegan greens. So this is going to be, uh, in true southern tradition, a lot of mixed greens. So it's going to be kale, 
collards and mustard greens. So all of you who've discovered kale in the last 10 years, welcome to the party. We've been eating it for about 300. All right. Uh, the, so these are vegan. So normally when I make my greens, I do, uh, just to show you the cooking preparation, what I do is I get a whole onion, I get some garlic, and I get some kind of meat. So either ham hock or smoked turkey. I've been doing smoked turkey more lately. And then I just do enough water to cover that, and then I boil that to get a nice flavored broth, and then I put the greens in that. So this just doesn't have the meat in it. So what I did is I used some spice mixes from Savory Spice Company to give it a little kick. So hopefully it turned out all right, but this is not my usual preparation, but I hope you enjoy it. Plus, it takes away the guilt from all the pie you're about to get as well. (laughs) All right. So let me first admit something, Um, and I feel a lot of love in this room, so I'm just going to share this. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, yeah. which immediately loses me street cred on the subject of soul food, wherever I go. So let me try to win you back. My mom was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So this is the food that I grew up eating. And most strongly, the, the tradition was on holidays and, and um, weekends. But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a soul food guy. So what I'm going to do now is just share the journey, talk about some lessons learned, and give you my thoughts on where soul food is going. So um, I was started out as a lawyer, uh, and not to disparage any lawyers in the audience, but practicing law was not for me. It got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office, and white people were joining in. That's how rough it was. I mean, do you know how depressing it is to sing Deo while the sun is rising? Um, so I, I was going to open up a soul food restaurant. In fact, I had the, if you've been to Cuba Cuba, I had that spot. I had a chef. I was raising money. And then I got a chance to work in the Clinton White House. Uh, And uh, I got the Clinton White House job the old-fashioned way. I knew someone. So a friend of mine from Georgetown Law School uh, called me up out of the blue. I'm practicing law in Denver. And she says, do you have any friends back in D.C. that might be interested in this White House job called the President's Initiative for One America? It was an outgrowth of President Clinton's initiative on race. And the whole idea is that if we just got to know one another, we'd probably realize that we have a lot more in common than what divides us. So I did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee, only submitted my name, and I got the job. So it it was really cool. I have to say real quickly, this is a little sidetrack. So um, I love my time in the White House, and the only thing that bothered me was just kind of my interactions with Clinton. So you've probably heard, not that kind of interaction, I know what you're thinking. Uh, You've probably talked to people who have met President Clinton. He makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. He draws you in. I've never got that. Every time I talked to that dude, it was just a blank look. I'd say, Mr. President, he'd kind of look at me blankly, much like you're looking at me right now. <laughs> I'm Adrian Miller, still a blank look. And then I'd say, I work on your One American issue. Like, oh, that's great, right? So uh, it was interesting. But I did love my time in the White House. So uh, at the change of administration, what happens if you're a political appointee is you have to write a letter of resignation, and then you give it to the incoming president, and then decide whether to keep you or not. Shockingly, George W. Bush decided not to keep me on staff. <laughs> So I was unemployed, watching a lot of daytime television, got to the point where I said, I guess I should read something. So I went to the bookstore, and I got a book on the history of Southern food called Southern Food at Home, On the Road in History, written by this guy named John Edgerton. He died last year. A great book if you want to know about Southern food. And um, in that book, he said the tribute to African-American achievement in cookery has yet to be written. I'm reading the book. It was about 10 years old. So I just emailed him out of the blue, and I said, Mr. Edgerton, you wrote this. Do you still think this is true? He said, yeah, for the most part, nobody's taken on the whole story. So with no qualifications at all, except for eating soul food a lot, 
and cooking it some, I decided to dive in, and that led to this journey. So um, in terms of the preparation for the book, I read about 3,000 slave narratives. I read about 500 different cookbooks. I read innumerable magazine and newspaper articles that had been digitized and put online and were word searchable. And then because I care about my craft so much, I figured I needed to eat my way through the country. So I went to 150 soul food restaurants in 35 cities in 15 states. You look surprised that I'm still alive. Yeah, all right. If you were my Facebook friend, I brought you along for the journey. So I would take a picture of the restaurant exterior and the plate I was eating and then describe it. Um, So that was a lot of fun. Uh, Believe it or not, I actually lost weight during that time because I was very mindful of what I was eating. I was much better about exercising and and other things. I actually gained weight when I got a job. So anyway... (laughs) Um, And that leads to kind of why I wrote this book. So there there are two main criticisms of soul food. One is that soul food needs a warning label, right? That if you eat this on a regular basis, it's going to kill you. And the other is that soul food is not worthy of celebration. Now, this is a critique more strongly felt in the African-American community. It's that that's slave food. We don't need to celebrate that. We need to get past that. Um, Based on my research, um, I figured out that I had enough material to write five books, So I decided to write the book this way. I created a representative soul food meal. This is my book. Yeah. I created a representative soul food meal, and I write a chapter about every part of the meal, and I explain what it is, how it gets on the soul food plate, what it means for the culture, and then most of the chapters have recipes, traditional, health-conscious, and a uh, fancy one in case you want to show off as a cook. Okay? (laughs) So uh, how many of you know about soul food, have had it, are fairly knowledgeable? Okay, that's not bad. All right. I'm inviting you to heckle me, okay, as I give you this meal. You've been very nice so far, but you can heckle me. Okay, entrees, fried chicken, catfish, or chitlins. If you don't know what chitlins are, chitlins are pig intestines that can either be, <laughs> that can either be stewed or fried, okay? Side dishes, mixed greens, mac and cheese, black-eyed peas, uh, and then let's see, da-da-da, mac and cheese, uh, and candy jams. And yams are sweet potatoes. Yeah, you know about that? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm connected with my brother over here. All right. And then I wrote a chapter on cornbread. I wrote a chapter on hot sauce because in the soul food tradition, we put hot sauce in everything. And then I wrote a chapter on red drinks because I believe that red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. Now, there is a generational... Okay, first of all, you have to understand, in, in soul food culture, red is a color and a flavor. We don't call things cherry or strawberry or that it has hints of cranberry. It's just red. (laughs) Now, there is a generational split happening. There are a lot of youngins that seem to like purple drink, all right? (laughs) I write about this in my book, and I say I do believe the children are our future, that we should teach them well and let them lead the way, but not on Kool-Aid. They're messing it up. (laughs) And then I couldn't make up my mind about one dessert, so I wrote about four. Pound cake, peach cobbler, banana pudding, and sweet potato pie. So that's the meal, okay? Um, So I I will say this. uh, It was very interesting just doing research, eating this food, but a lot of what I wrote in my book came from talking to other people. So for those of you who are thinking about writing a book, the first lesson learned is just share your dream. I know you're told a lot of times to keep things close because somebody can steal it and write the book. But no, you have to understand, you come to a story uniquely, so share your dream. Uh, Because a lot of cool things happened for me because I just told people what I was working on. Okay. Um, the other thing is just trying to date while writing a book. So <laughs> I just thought, you know, I could tap the artist vibe, you know, tell, hey, I'm, you know, baby, I'm working on a book, pursuing my dream. Man, women were straight up mean about it. 
I would tell them what I was doing, and then they, I'd get a puzzled look across the table, and they would say, so you really don't have a job, do you? <laughs> so, anyway. And then there's also the question of recipe collecting. So if you've dealt with elderly black women... Uh, it's hard to get a recipe. I mean, I had easier time getting information with top secret clearance in the White House than getting a recipe from a... So, you know, that's a hard thing. But I will say this. Is anybody here married to or dating a good cook? Okay. My advice to you is get the recipes before you break up. It's a lot easier, all right? But actually, I had, do have a former girlfriend who submitted a recipe to this book. And how, when does that ever happen? So anyway, that was really good. Uh, so the book comes out in August of, 19, of, of 2013. It does well. And then, uh, fortunately, I got nominated for the James Beard Award. Yeah, thank you. Now, in the run-up to the James Beard Award, they tell you basically, you, if you win, they don't tell you, right, if you're going to win. They basically, it's one of those things where they, somebody comes up to the podium, opens up an envelope, and says the name. If you win, you have one minute to give your acceptance speech. So in the run-up to that event, I was practicing my one-minute acceptance speech, and then also my fake, oh, I'm so happy you won instead of me, look, just in case that happened. So that was a great honor. So I did win the James Beard Award for Outstanding Reference and Scholarship. Thank you. So let, let me just answer some questions about soul food and, um, and then give you my thoughts on where it's going. So the first question is, where does this term soul food come from? Most people talk about it starting in the 1960s where you have some strong expressions of black identity. Black is beautiful. Um, you know, if I had hair, I would be wearing an afro, you know, that kind of stuff. But actually the term soul food goes back to Shakespeare's first play. That's the first mention in English. Does anybody here know Shakespeare's first play? Oh, your high school English teachers would be so disappointed. All right. <laughs> Two gentlemen of Verona. In that play, you've got two female characters, Julia and Lucetta, talking about this hunky guy named Proteus. Proteus walks by. Julia says to Lucetta, Oh, knowest thou not that his looks are my soul's food? Pity the death that I have pined in by longing for that food so long a time. No applause for my dramatic interpretation? Wow. Rough crowd at Lighthouse. Okay, so... We learned something very important from this. First of all, uh, it's not unusual, even in the 16th century, for two girlfriends to get together and describe a guy as yummy. That's the first thing we learned. (laughs) Thanks for laughing at that joke. Um, The other thing is that Shakespeare's playing off the intangible and the tangible. That gets to the heart of the soul concept. The idea that African Americans, because of centuries of oppression, whatever we do is going to be the most elemental expression of humanity. But for the next 400 years, soul food was purely religious in connotation. It meant doing anything to edify your spiritual life. Reading, listening to a sermon, reading scriptures, singing hymns. In the 1940s, it takes a musical turn. So you have a group of disgruntled African-American jazz artists. They're disgruntled because the white jazz artists are the ones getting the most gigs, making the most money, and taking credit for creating this art form. So they took the music to a place where they thought white artists could not mimic the sound. And that was the sound of the black church in the rural south. That gospel sound that was inflected in jazz, they started calling soul and funky in the 1940s and 50s. So it was floating around in black culture before we get to the 1960s. What happens in the 1960s is that soul food gets racialized and radicalized. So you have black power advocates trying to figure out how do I unify a very disparate African-American community? Because what was happening in the rural South resonated with a lot of African-Americans, but what was happening in the urban slums in the North and West was a different beast. So culture was the way they connected people, and food is a strong connector. So there was this... uh, manifesto leaked to the New York Times that said white people can't understand things like ham hocks, chitlins, greens, and all these other things. Now, this was news to white Southerners because they had been eating the same foods for about 200 years. (laughs) But soul became black, Southern became white, and we're still living with the legacy of that today. If I were to say, name somebody on TV associated with soul food who's a real booster for soul food, who would you name? 
Paula Dean, interesting. Okay, for soul food. Okay, Paula Dean. Anybody else? Okay, um, if I said Southern food, you would say Paula Dean, Trisha Yearwood, her sons, right? I think the problem, the challenge that we face now is that the African American contributions to Southern food have been obscured to the point where they're forgotten. Southern food is a shared cuisine, and soul food is an offshoot of Southern food. What's the difference? It's really more about performance, okay? Soul food tends to be funkier. It's going to have funkier cuts of meat, like variety meats, so like, uh, you know, ham hocks, oxtails, all that, which cracks me up because now those things are hot, right? Um, and a, a lot of it is about mindset. If you said to somebody, I'm going to go to Adrian's juke joint, soul food joint, and have some pig's feet, people would say, oh, that's so disgusting. Why are you doing that to your body? I can't believe that. Now, change it to a white tablecloth restaurant, fine dining, a- Shea Adrian, we'll call the restaurant. You're going to go to Shea Adrian and have some trotters? Oh, the food is so amazing. <laughs> The chef is so daring, taking us to places we've never been with food before. And they'll charge you $30. I just think it's funny. Um, so it's really about performance. Soul food's going to be more intense. It's going to have more spice, more sugar, um, more salt. It's just more of the flavorings. But there's a lot of overlap. Now, there are some things that you'll see in a soul food restaurant that you usually won't see in a southern restaurant. You're just In a southern restaurant, especially one run by whites, even though a lot of southern whites eat this food, you're just not going to see chitlins. You're just never really going to see that. And, and there's some other dishes that are the same way in soul food joint. I have yet to see a lane cake in a soul food joint. And that's a very obscure kind of, sub, but a very popular um, southern dish. All right. Um, right now, soul food is in a postmodern state. You've got the traditional soul food. And then you've got something called down-home healthy. Down-home healthy is taking those ingredients and making it lighter. So instead of smoked pork, you may use turkey. Um, smoked turkey. Uh, instead of butter, you would use margarine. Instead of lard, you would use shortening. Okay, and then you have something called upscale soul food, which is the exact opposite, where you double down on the extravagance. <laughs> so you know you're using saffron, you're using duck fat, that kind of stuff. The hottest trend in soul food right now is vegan. I know you don't believe me, but that is the hottest trend. Most soul food restaurants are now vegan in terms of their side dishes. When I was eat- gobbling my way through the rural South. I got to a point where I said, man, can a brother just have a little pork? Just a little? In his greens. I mean, that's how prevalent it is. Uh, and then the, um, so that, that, that's just kind of what's happening right now. I have not yet seen molecular gastronomy applied to soul food. So I'm waiting to see somebody do like a collard green dust with um, sweet potato spears and a chitlin foam. I'm just really excited to see that. Uh, let me share. How much time do I have? I just want to share a little. A little okay. I just have a couple of uh, interesting items that I found on the road. So uh, has anybody here ever had a kulikel? A kulikel is a Kool-Aid pickle. Yeah. You've had that. Do you like them? Uh, no. no. Okay. Where did you have yours? Mississippi. Mississippi? In the Delta? Yeah. It was like in the, okay. Did you go to, were you in uh, Cleveland, Mississippi? I don't remember what town it was. That's a very Mississippi kind of answer. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Here's how you make a kulikel. You get a jar of already made Kool-Aid, uh, already made kosher dill pickles. Take the pickles out, either poke holes in them or slice them. Make Kool-Aid out of the pickle brine. So you just the pickle brine is water in the Kool-Aid recipe. Put the pickles back in. Hold on, man. You gonna you just hold on. You're right. Put the pickles back in. Close it. Leave it there for two weeks. Open it up and eat it. If you like the taste of pickles and of Kool-Aid, it's just as sweet and sour. If you don't like either one of those things, this is one of the nastiest things you'll put in your mouth. Now, the question is, where does this come from? Well, if you talk to older African-Americans, when they were kids, what they would do is they would get a big pickle. They'd go to the store, get a big pickle, cut the tip off the pickle, and put peppermint sticks 
that had a hole in the middle, let it dissolve in the pickle juice, and then suck on it. Same concept. Or they would put Jolly Ranchers or Jawbreakers or some kind of hard candy. Okay? So, uh, and then the hardcore people would just get Kool-Aid powder and just dip the pickle in there and eat that. But that's hardcore. Um, Los Angeles had the, the prize for the weirdest soul food. I had, let me just tell you quickly about two places. I had one place uh, called Tony's Soul Burger, which is soul food hamburgers. So I had a Thanksgiving burger. Here's a soul food Thanksgiving burger. Whole wheat bun, all turkey patty, a layer of cornbread dressing. Soul food, we call it dressing. We don't call it stuffing. A layer of collard greens, a layer of sweet potato puree, a layer of cranberries, whole wheat bun. Genius. It just tastes like that. Then I went to a place called Otis Jackson's Soul Hot Dogs. Soul food hot dogs. Here's a soul food hot dog. Bun, wiener, collard green and cucumber relish, sweet potato puree drizzle, crumbled bacon bits. Slamming. All right. Both of those places has clo- have closed, so it's unfortunate. Um, but just to circle back on this idea about soul food being vegan, if you actually go back to what enslaved African Americans were eating, it's pretty close to what we call vegan today. Because anything, um, like they only, the, the typical slave rations were five pounds of a starch, could be cornmeal, rice, or sweet potatoes, a couple of meat, pounds of uh, smoked meat, that could be beef pork or fish, and it could be dried, salted, or smoked, and then a jug of molasses. So the enslaved had to forage, garden, hunt, and do all these other things to supplement their diet. Meat was prestigious, so it was used very sparingly. In fact, it was used really just to season vegetables. And anything with white flour or white sugar was considered a, a, considered a prestige food that enslaved African Americans only got when the work schedule closed, and that was on weekends. Oh, slow down, I'm sorry. So that was either on weekends or holidays. So a lot of what we think of as soul food is the celebration food of uh, the rural South. And if you think about most of the cuisines we considered immigrant cuisines, they're the celebration foods of those countries, right? Because poor immigrants come over here, they get settled, they try to recreate home, and usually it's the day-in and day-out stuff. But once they start to prosper, they remember the good foods from back home, and you start to have those more often during the week. That's what happened with soul food. You may think you have a constitutional right to fried chicken, but fried chicken was an every once in a while food. It was not the convenience food that we think of today. So when you start eat, eating celebration food on the regular, it's not going to do your body good. Okay? So um, I'm inviting people to just reassess soul food, think more about it, um, and give it a try. Because a lot of soul food restaurants are hurting. A lot of them are closing right now. And that's because people are not patronizing them. So um, just to circle back to uh, a theme that I opened up with before... I don't think soul food needs a warning label. I just think it needs more love. Thank you. I'm going to make small talk while pie is getting passed out. Yeah, it's true in my life. Make it small talk. Um, I have a couple things. I have a thing or two in common with Rob and Adrian. Um, Rob has served me many a drink, many, many a drink, (laughs) and they're always the most delicious. And I think, do you like sweet potato pie? Yeah. I think Adrian and I both have an affinity for sweet potato pie. Um, I like mine with the ginger whipped cream on it. That's how I make it in the shop. Um, how do you like your pie, Adrian? Just plain, straight up. I like that. Neat. <laughs> yeah, Adrian likes his pie neat, which I, I would also normally say. I'm, I'm not an all-mode pie kind of girl, so um, I like mine neat as well. 
Uh, so I think Pi is still getting passed out. Hopefully you all will have Pi shortly. Um, but I wanted all of you to have Pi before I started talking. Because I really... So if you didn't hear me earlier, too, I want to announce the, the two flavors that are being passed out. So salted honey lavender. So if you have that custardy kind of one that has a creme brulee top. Um, that's salted honey lavender. It's a chess pie. Chess is um, a kind of pie. It's So there's like custard, chess, fruit, nut. Chess is a kind of pie that uh, vinegar and cornmeal are the binders in that with an egg and whipping cream. So the cool thing about chess pie is you can... You can do it any any kind of flavor way. So I have a chocolate chess pie. Buttermilk is a chess pie. Um, you can change it up a lot. Or bourbon chocolate con's the other one. Um, that is these are our two crowd favorites in our shop. So I brought them tonight. Uh, but I wanted you all to have pie first because before I start like talking about you know, the story of the artist, social worker, pie maker, business owner that I am. Um, I, I believe that pie should be shared around a table. So if you guys can just take a second, you can close your eyes if you need to. You can keep your eyes open if you want to. But I need you to really, like, get in a place with me before I start talking. Because I want to kind of pretend that instead of me standing up here with a mic and this nice little thing in front of me holding my notes that we're actually sitting at a table somewhere together and we're just kind of having a, a, a talk one to another and I'm telling you the story of my life and business and pie and all of that stuff. So if you can get to a place where you can visualize that table that you would be at um, that makes you feel safe and at home and that we could be sitting across from each other, I'm going to give you a second for that. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my table, where pie started for me, um, to kind of start this whole thing out. So my table starts in Indiana, um, at my grandma's house. When I was little, it was a small town in Indiana, which I like to still call it that. But now it's this, like, I don't even like going back there very much anymore, because now it's this, like, sprawling suburb of Indianapolis, and it kind of makes me sad because we, when I was little, there was no stoplights. There was, it was surrounded by farm fields. Um, it was like this small town where they had a tiny grocery store called Archers. And they had this like huge meat section where the butcher was there. And um, there was like one bar in town that people went to and the train still went through it and all of that stuff. So when I was little, it was a small town in Indiana. So I like to think of it still as that, though it's this suburb now of Indianapolis. Um, but when I was little, uh, at the time when I can start to remember making pie with my grandma, I was about five years old. My mom and dad were really young when they got married. They were 18 and 19, straight out of high school. Um, had me, my mom was 21 when she had me. So if you guys can think back to 21, uh, you're still really in that prime of trying to figure out who you are, what you're doing, uh, maybe a career path or something like that. Um, and so they were trying to figure out that stuff. So I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. And in my family, um, family is, the concept of family, being with family is very important. Um, I just recently took my boyfriend home to meet my parents, and he had a 
rude awakening when there was about 60 people invited to our house <laughs> for a cookout to meet him. Because uh, that's what my, that's how we roll in our family. Like, everyone's invited. The whole extended family is over. It's like a spread of food. Alcohol is flowing. Like, that's just how it is. And so that's kind of how I grew up in this, like, thing of hospitality. Um and people, family just being around. So in my grandma's house, there was my grandma and my grandpa. I call him Peepaw, so if I ever refer to that. Um, and Meemaw, which is my grandma's mom. She moved in. So just to, to clue you in on what family time at grandma's house looked like over dinner, um, it looked a lot like Meemaw, so my great-grandma, would cook First. So she was the cook of the family, and my grandma, they all lived together in the same ranch house in this small town in Indiana. So great-grandma would cook, grandma would make dessert. So every day, she'd make pie, basically, like or every other day, depending on how many people were over for dinner that night, um, she'd make pie. So grandma, my favorite meal that my great-grandma made was chicken and dumplings. So it's like whole pieces of chicken in there, biscuits on top, lots of gravy. Um, and the table was just set with anyone that happened to stop by. So it could have been a neighbor. It could have been, um, you know, if my uncle had been living there at the time, another cousin, anything like that. Um, so the table would just kind of sit around. We would just sit around. We'd eat dinner. We'd clear the table. And then my grandma would bring out whatever pie was for dessert that night. We'd still sit at this table. Um, And her specialty, which was typically a fall pie, was a spiced apple cranberry, which I sell in the shop now. Um, It's called Grandma's Pie, if you ever look at our menu. It's called Grandma's Pie. Because it's the pie that I learned how to make pie on a long time ago. And then, so we'd sit there, we'd eat pie, maybe all in mode, maybe not. And then that clear, and then play cards for what felt like forever. So is anyone here from the Midwest at all? Okay. Woo, yeah, Midwest. Uh, So, Euchre? Does anyone know Euchre? Okay. People from Colorado don't know Euchre. I I don't think I've played Euchre since I've lived here for 10 years because of this, but uh, Euchre or Rummy. Rummy was the other thing. Yeah. So, yeah, Rummy. Yeah. So, Euchre or Rummy, we'd play Euchre or Rummy, and we would just sit there for hours and hours. And I feel like that's what pie kind of is to me, is this, like, really awesome relational dessert it's not not to knock cookies or cupcakes or whatever um but cookies like i sell them in the bakery they're fine but they're grab and go you know like you can just like take them and eat them on the run pie feels like something that you sit down you have this in-depth conversation maybe over a glass of wine or two whatever cup of coffee at the end of the night or in the morning if you want breakfast pie um which is my favorite uh so you you do that it's a sit down kind of relational kind of thing so that's kind of my family and how i learned how to make pie which is an interesting thing in the baking world because bakers are there any bakers in the audience before i say this okay i'm sorry if i offend anyone but um, as a baker i'm saying this Bakers are kind of snotty, like, because a lot of them are, 
pastry chefs. You know, they they went to school for a long time. I am a odd duck in that world of baking because I didn't go to school for it. I learned from my grandma, and and I think it just like in some fields. Like when I was a social worker, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but when I was a social worker, like it's all about getting your master's degree. Like you're nothing in the social work world if you don't have a master's degree. In the baking world, it's kind of the same thing. Like people, people, if you aren't a trained pastry chef, then it's a different level. You can win. Like we won. We've been Best Pie in Denver in 2014 by 5280. This last, this just a month ago, we won Best Sweets Bakery in um, the Westward. So Best of Westward, we're Best Sweets Bakery. I think Bar, Bar Faso won. They won something, yeah. Best New Cocktail Bar. Yeah, woo-woo. <laughs> um, so you can win awards and sometimes in the baking world, it just doesn't matter if you don't have those things behind you. So it's been an interesting, that's been like one of those struggles I think that I've had personally in that. But, um, so I was, it sounds like all three of us have been different things before in different lives and have then come to this place. Uh, I was a social worker. I worked with, um, Youth and refugees living with HIV was my last job in Denver uh, for five years at a non-profit, large nonprofit in town. Um, and for 10 years after I got my undergrad degree, that's what I did. I did social work, case management, all of that stuff. So in that time, uh, I saw a large gap in first-time employment for youth uh, that were living with, like, maybe a mental health or um, maybe a substance issue or just homeless, you know, one of those things. And so that's kind of how this pie shop got born was out of that because uh, I was in a social work job and I was realizing that um, I felt like I was signing payment forms basically to help people sustain a life so they would uh get their rent paid if they were having a hard time that month or excel and all of that stuff but i wasn't helping people live that extra life um past just survival in that moment and i what i realized is a lot of that is employment they didn't have a place that they could be employed regularly because uh, if they were late to Wendy's for five minutes late or something, then they'd just get fired because there's another 16-year-old in the in the pipeline. It's kind of to get up into there. So um, that's kind of how this whole thing started, which I'm now three years this month into business, so that's not... That's great, yeah. <laughs> Survived three years, woo! Uh, it's not very long in business, um, but it feels like a long time sometimes. Um, but I'm still trying to like get that aspect of my business started. I've done internships along the way, but obviously in a for-profit business, you have to be sustainable before you start taking on at-risk youth to teach them culinary skills in the kitchen. Um but we just moved into our first brick-and-mortar store at 2400 Curtis Street. Um, it's in a big old synagogue. That's at 2400 Curtis. Um, it's all artist studios, and we are the culinary arts of the artist studios. Um, and part of that, why I, I got some offers from some other places in town. Uh, one is 
this place was the cheapest rent possible. So that's a new business. That was great. It was in a neighborhood that I wanted to be a part of. So um, St. Francis Center, which is a large uh, drop-in center for people who are homeless, is right down the street. Um, There's a charter school, artists. There's a Montessori school. It's an interesting neighborhood to be a part of um, right now. And um, the other piece is that I believe that pie is a form of art. (laughs) just like writing is or soul food making is just like cocktails are it's all a form of art in the way we express ourselves and so for me um i am all about the insides of pie so i i got a crust that i love hopefully you guys liked it too um (laughs) thank you it's an all butter crust um just to tell you a little bit about the crust it's an all butter crust um and Typically, my preference is to bake in cast iron skillets. Um, that's my preference. And why I do that, thank you. <laughs> I, I cook everything in cast iron skillets now at my house and everything. But um, why I do that in baking is because, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you all this so that you hopefully do too. But it's um, baking it is an even cook, and it makes the outside of your baked goods crispy. So if you could, I, I threw through, a, through science, I figured out how to also do it in aluminum tin so that when I give you a pie to take home, you can take it in aluminum tin and it tastes like it's baked in cast iron. So I figured that out through, the, through a process. But cast iron makes it crispy on the outside. Um, so it has, it naturally, if you make the butter crust well and you don't overmix your crust, then it'll make that flaky, crispy crust that you want that holds up and it's not going to be soggy in the middle. And then... Um, with the insides of pie, I just, it's inspiration from all the things around me. So, like, the two pies you had tonight, um, one, the bourbon chocolate pecan is a traditional derby pie. And a little tidbit is that you can't actually call it a derby pie. If you call it a derby pie, it's illegal and they will come after you. Um, because it is, it is like trademarked by the derby. So I call it a drunken nut on our menu, uh, which I think is funny, but, um, and, but it's the same thing. It's bourbon, you know, chocolate and pecans. And that's a typical derby pie. So for me, that's reminiscent of my family originally is from Kentucky on horse farms. Um, so my extended family owns horse farms in Kentucky. And that's just a piece of like who I am. And we grew up on derby pie on my mom's side. And then uh, the salted honey lavender that you had tonight. Uh, the inspiration for that came from one of my favorite restaurants, actually in Sonoma, California. I was on this first trip that I went to like wine country with some girls and we went to the girl in the fig has anyone gone to Sonoma and gone to the girl in the fig at all no okay if you go to Sonoma ever you should go there um it's a really delicious restaurant and um they have a salt a lavender salt so I just happened to see it in their little market store and noted it I guess in my head and then later um came up with that pie and so it's just I bring inspiration from events, people, uh, things, just to create these pie flavors. Um, So we have like a blackberry peach jalapeno during peach season. Um, Another one is an apple brie prosciutto from another like travel time that I had with some friends and a picnic. Um, 
So it just comes from all these different places. Uh, and then just to tell you a little bit about my everyday. Um, so tomorrow morning I'll be waking up at 3 a.m. And <laughs> I am at the bakery at 4 a.m. And um, start baking pie, basically. And Saturdays are a crazy day during the summer because we have farmer's market. So if you guys live around this area or downtown or whatever, Union Station Farmer's Market's a new farmer's market. Um, and we're in that farmer's market. And so uh, we get there between 7 and 7.30 to set up, but we have to bake everything for the three hours prior to that. Um, and then we'll work farmer's market till 2, and then I'll go back, and I'll have an em- tomorrow I'll have an employee at the shop. But I have one employee currently, <laughs> and that happens to be the girl that works on Saturdays while I'm at farmer's market. So if you order a pie for me right now, I'm the one that bakes it. So I I do the counting, I bake your pie, I serve it to you when you come into the shop. Um, all of that is what I do. So the days are kind of crazy because of that. But I think as if anyone here owns a business, they know like that's just kind of what happens. Especially if you're a business that um, has kind of bootstrapped your way if that's a word um into where you're at so um yeah uh to conclude all of that um some of the things that and maybe maybe you guys have some stuff in this too but some of the things that customers ask me when they come in is what's your favorite that's like a very like typical question that someone's going to ask me. And I never know how to answer that since I'm the one that bakes it. So I'm like, uh, well, tell me a little bit more about the flavor profile you want. Um, that's a hard question to ask. And the other, the other one that I get a lot is um, from people this is an interesting thing, like in going to like the service in- industry that Rob talked about before, I'll have people come into the shop and they're kind of, they're kind of like rude a little bit to me and I'm the only one in there. It's just me. So, um, and then I tell them I'm the owner and then they change a little bit. Like they change their demeanor almost entirely. If I tell them that I'm the owner. Um, so let's all be kind to our service, the service industry people, um, is one of those things. And then the other one is, um, that I get a lot is, wow, that seems like a lot for a pie, like price wise. Um, I think people are, they're, accustomed to grocery store pie, right? So Rebecca was talking about that earlier. Grocery store pie, like, man, after Thanksgiving, King Supers really (laughs) drops their prices. And I've seen pie at King Supers, a whole pie for $5. And I am not even sure how that's even possible, but they have it. Um, But just, just thinking through like those small bakeries, pie shops, things like that, and you see prices on that, uh, remember that they probably make everything by hand. Like, I I don't use a mixer for my crust. I, today, made, uh, I don't know how many crusts. <laughs> I can't even remember now, but maybe, like, up to 50 probably today, um, which will be divvied into mini pies and all this kind of stuff, but uh, by hand. So, 
I don't use a mixer for that. We use farm fruits as much as possible, um, all of that stuff. So just keep those things into consideration when you are thinking through stuff. Um, but we'd love to see you at the bakery if you ever want to come in or farmer's markets. We do pairings with businesses around town a lot. Um, and one of my favorite quotes is from a Patty Griffin song. Any Patty Griffin fans in the audience or is it just me? <laughs> um, she said she has like a pot. She has a song about making pie. Um, and it says you could cry or die or just make pies all day. I'm making pies. And so I'm making pies. Thanks. Sean, do you guys want to come up for a quick Q&A? I'm sure there are questions about pie, other things. Um, are there any questions? Ah, okay, question is, what's my favorite soul food place in Denver? So there are really three that are kind of around the same ballpark. So Cora Faze on Colorado Boulevard and roughly 29th, but they're closing in a couple weeks to move to Aurora. Um, there's Welton Street Cafe. On Welton, uh, the light rail stops right in front of it. Uh, service is kind of slow there. Uh, and then in Aurora, there's a place called Kirk's Soul Kitchen. It's just east of uh, Colfax and I-225. Uh, and the brother's named after Captain Kirk, which I think is just interesting. <laughs> so those are the three places that I think of a lot. I used to love Tom's, but, you know, I don't know if you know Tom's Home Cooking. That wasn't Seoul. That was more Southern, in my opinion, but they closed. So thank you. to share my pie crust recipe and here's the reason why in some ways one is two reasons one is i would rather you bake your own pies at home actually because i believe it to be a table dessert than you actually come buy pie for me and the second is okay cool and the second is is it's more technique than recipe to be honest with you um so that that's my caveat when I tell you this recipe. Um, so it is, this is a this is a recipe for two pie crusts. So you can have a top bottom or throw one in the freezer or refrigerator for later. Um, it's two and a half cups flour. It's a cup of butter. Um, a tablespoon of sugar and a teaspoon of salt. Three-fourths cup ice cold water or as cold as you can get it. You don't have to put ice in it, but if your tap's pretty cold, you're good to go. And then celiac, um, that's a trickier question because yes and no. Like I, I made up my own gluten-free crust, um, which I, am, I can't tell you as much as that one because that one might be a product down the line like that's coming out soon. So it would be hard to tell you like the full recipe for that one. Um, but it's, it's a mix of flours, honestly. Yeah. It's totally possible. And actually, if you use that recipe, here's what I will tell you. If you use that recipe and um, it's Red Mill, Bob's Red Mill has a good gluten-free crust. So Bob's Red Mill has a good crust. Um, the only thing with a gluten-free is that it doesn't stick together very well. 
So you instead of using you don't use water with gluten free. You use yogurt and apple cider vinegar. So it's a half a cup of yogurt. Use the same recipe I told you, and then it's a Rob's Bob's Red Mill, and then um, half a cup of yogurt and two tablespoons apple cider vinegar. Yeah. Oh, good question. So would I have ever written my book? Probably not. Um, it, well, actually, I would have, but it would have taken a longer time because when I, after the, when I moved back to Colorado, I had some political jobs. So I was like a grad student. So I would work from 9 to 5, basically, and then I would eat and then go to the library and stay there till it closed. And then on weekends, I was doing research as well. So it would have taken me a long time. But it was actually because Governor Ritter, who I worked for, decided not to run for a second term. That's when I dove in, because knowing how um, intense that I am, I knew that I would just keep editing and editing, and it'd be 10 years. So I just said, you know what, I got to go for it. So uh, my advice is just dive in and don't edit as you go. Just get the product down, set writing goals every day, and just do it. So uh, probably the book would be probably coming out in 2020 if I didn't (laughs) get that job. So the question is, why, why is uh, soul food headed into vegan territory? I think it's really economics. I think a lot of soul food restaurants, oh, it's two things. Economics, a lot of soul food restaurants realize that it, you can have the broadest customer base if you do vegan sides. Now, they still have ma- meat on the menu, but they just have vegan sides. Uh, and the other thing is there's so much political consciousness about food in the black community right now, like, especially in a place like Oakland in the Bay Area. A lot of consciousness about it. So people are rethinking food, the, f- the food system. And this idea of uh, environmental justice and food deserts, and there's a lot of talk about that. So people are seeing vegan as a way to kind of assert some independence and control over the diet. So that's why I see it. Yeah. Uh, my question is for Rob. I was wondering what uh, most creative cocktail you've been using. <laughs> the question is the most creative cocktail that I've ever created. Oh my gosh. Um, let's just kind of flip through the catalog in my brain here. Uh, <laughs> do, 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 do. I did a kale. Oh, you did? A kale foam. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I know. I know. I was like kind of dreading that. Uh, <laughs> I did a kale foam on somewhat of like a last word riff cocktail, which is a lime juice, maraschino liqueur. Uh, green chartreuse and gin and I thought with all those vegetal things I could put a kale foam on there with some pink peppercorns and it was awful okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say hook me with the rest of you <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is also for Rob uh, I feel like the way that you were speaking about your, your job as a bartender and the passion that you instilled in it from a social perspective is something that I'm really drawn to Okay, so I kind of talked about that masochist thing. Um, it's hard work. It's a lot of hard work. Um, the one advice that I would give is you'd go find a bar that you really like and you really respect the drinks and respect the guys and the girls behind that bar, and you just start sitting there a lot. 
And you start showing up maybe a couple times a week and maybe three times a week. And uh, you're nice and you tip well and you tell good jokes and you kind of get their personality and they get to know you a little bit better. And then every once in a while, maybe I like two or three weeks and like, oh, hey, what's going on? You know, they, get, they start making your drink for you. Go, what can I do to help? Is there any job openings? I'll do anything. And that's usually a good foot in the door. And then it shows over a little bit of, um, for me, like if not experience, cause I have one of my greatest bartenders right now is this young man named Carlos Vega. And he grew up in probably the shittiest part of Commerce city. Um, with not a lot of privilege and he did the same thing. He showed up one day almost for a month and just bugged me every day. It's like Rudy, just like, Hey man, I want to play football. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> and I got to know him and then I got to hear a little bit about him and he asked that question like hey man what could I do one day and I get it like is it washing dishes is it scrubbing gum off the bottom of your thing like I don't know anything about bartending and usually I'm going to find a spot because if you're showing me that you want it that bad and you can put the work in to do it you, I can teach you how to shake a tin I can teach you recipes I can teach you anything but you just have showed me that you're a good person you're passionate and your heart work really hard for somebody like me that's a first step always so I hope that answers your question Yeah, absolutely. So anything that we drink um, is a balance, and it's chemistry. So it's usually something that's neutral, like let's take vodka. You could even substitute like a water or a club soda. So that's usually your neutral spirit or your neutral ingredient. Uh, a little bit of sweet and an acid. And all that is, and it's kind of funny, is I use um, like Pyrex 600-milliliter beakers that I stir drinks in and be like, oh, it's just like high school chemistry. I'm like, it is like high school chemistry. Um, cause, and then you can add other ingredients. So uh, a citrus, a sugar, and kind of that neutral element that's bringing uh, whether like a texture or a dilution or anything like that. Um, some of my favorite stuff, uh, like tonight, um, with uh, cucumber mint cordial that I put in that cocktail, four cups of water, four cups of sugar, and then I just juiced four large English cucumbers, added that in there, put a little bit of mint, and let it simmer, only simmer, for about 10 to 15 minutes. And you could add soda water to make it fizzy. You could add lime juice to make it a little bit more tart. But any of those combinations is going to be, whether a cocktail or a mocktail, that balance of the sweet or salty or citrus and salty or that inert or neutral uh, liquid or spirit. Does that answer your question? Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you you can make it at any flavor, and actually, if you go through the Mississippi Delta, uh, you'll see all kinds of flavor. But red is the most popular one. That's usually what you see. Yeah. Red so what flavor. If, yeah. What if I made it like a pickle Kool-Aid? Ooh. Ooh. Added it. See, now I'm spinning. Now I'm spinning. You know, there's canned pickle juice for sale. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, next week, populous pickle cocktails. Okay. Um, yeah, so glassware. So um, beer is kind of the big one. Wine is the big one. But my glassware guy, so if it's a different type of cocktail or it's a beer or a wine that I have, whether it's Belgian or French or a Saison or we have a lovely Pinot Noir from Germany, all that stuff is important because our factory is obviously tied to what we taste. And then 
where that glass is designed um, on any given week, um, I need something that, because everybody smells something before they, before they put it in their mouth. And I want that olfactory sense to be completely highlighted by that glass. And so that's just the, whatever cocktail or beer or wine, the shape of it is kind of just like forcing that aroma. Um, and so like one, for example, uh, if you come to bar Fausto, I have these beaut- it's called a distiller's glass and it's this beautiful stem. So you can hold it and you look fancy, a bulb, and then kind of like a tulip on it. And the way that's designed and it's been that way five, 600 years. And it highlights every, you'd be able to sound and smell every botanical herb, anything that goes in like fractal distillation that anything that whatever that distiller put in there, it's just designed to just a freeway right to your nose. Is that, did I get close? Okay. But I do want to hear, you guys all are operating on a high level, but what, what's like the status meal you have on a regular basis? On a regular basis? <laughs> Yo, you got one, you got one. I got one. Okay. So sometimes, sometimes um, after work I drink. <laughs> And that tends to like wake up in the morning not feeling very motivated. Um, and so the easiest, saddest meal that I'll make just for like pure sustenance, just to get me like out the door. Um, let's see, like white flour tortilla, American cheddar slices, uh, a little bit of garlic salt, uh, some Cholula, and then I microwave it. <laughs> <laughs> Something we have to make? No, 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 no. Uh, and, yeah, just All right, so um, one thing I didn't share is I'm a certified barbecue judge. So, uh, yeah, that's a great story, yeah. Uh, so, oh, that's a, I, I don't have enough time, but I'll tell you. It's actually a funny story. Um, so the saddest meal that I have on a regular basis, because a lot of people fake the funk on barbecue, is boiled barbecue. Barbecue should never be boiled first and then put on the grill. And there's a very popular uh, chain of restaurants here that does that, and that's the saddest thing for me. (laughs) So, I'm around food all day. Um, And I'm just give today as a perfect example of, like, this how sad I eat. I don't even eat. Like, I forget to eat. I ate the delicious food truck that was here tonight because that was the food of the day. But I, I for dinner, drank a beer. Like, that was what I did. I got, I got home, and that is all too often my meal for dinner is a beer. Um, but normally, it's, like, legitimately a fried egg. Like, that's, that's like, most meals. Or beer and a fried egg or something like that. Um, so go to Populous and Fausto. Go to Long Eye Pie Shop. Adrian's book's for sale. Thank you guys so much for coming to make it in that. Yeah. I have recipe cards.